0: Welcome to the 36th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan, and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Wolf Reich from the Babraham Institute in Cambridge. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Wolf, for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Stefan.
0: Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, You obtained your master's from the University of Hamburg. Uh, You you then did your thesis work with Rudolf Janisch and your postdoctoral work with Azim Surani in Cambridge. You were then a fellow of the Lister Institute of Preventive Medicine at Cambridge. And in the following, uh, the Institute's Associate Director since 2004. And you're also head of the epigenetics program uh, since 2008. Um, A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place, and then in pursuing a career in science?
1: Yeah, so um, it was a little bit accidental in my case. So I'm a medic originally, so I studied medicine in Freiburg and in Hamburg and in Germany. And then I was a little bit unsure what to do next. I mean, I kind of enjoyed medicine, but there was a, a bit of a lack of an intellectual challenge. I felt, and both both of my parents were scientists, so I had this sort of probably some sort of science bug in the in the background. And then I thought, oh, I'll try this PhD thing or MD thing in in my situation, actually. And I had a few false starts, so I started looking into labs and when I was in Hamburg and I didn't enjoy it, I didn't get excited. And then one day I went to a talk by Rudolf Janisch and I was completely electrified after the talk. And next morning I went to his lab and said, I want to do a, a doctorate here. And he turned around and said to me, we don't want any medics here. And he knew full well what he was talking about because he is a medic himself. And then, with a little bit, I I probably went there next day again and said, "Can I please do my my doctorate here?" And eventually, he sort of <laughs> he said, "Okay, you can stay." <laughs> and that what? was the start to my science career. And I hadn't, you know, I hadn't had much lab experience before. I had I didn't know what a pipetman looked like at that point.
0: Yeah. So, Ruf Janisch was that in Hamburg then or in, in Freiburg?
1: No, he was in Hamburg. So, he'd okay. been in the US first and then he came to be the uh, the head of a tumor virus department in, in Hamburg in the Heinrich Petter Institute. And then he went back to the US to be a founding member of the Whitehead Institute. So, at that point, he was in Hamburg.
0: Yeah, you then went on to to the UK for your postdoctoral work, and never came back to Germany, at least not yet. <laughs> Did you ever have the desire to come back, or do you plan to come back?
1: So, yeah, I had at the beginning I had this plan to stay for the usual, you know, two years, three years postdoc, and then I already had a fellowship, another postdoc fellowship lined up to go to the US, actually. But I liked the science so much, firstly that I was doing in in Cambridge, but also I liked the atmosphere of doing science very much in the UK. It had a much flatter hierarchies system. Germany was at that time was still quite hierarchical. I think things have improved since in Germany, and so I kind of fell in love with the British way of doing science more than anything. And also Cambridge is a, is a small, small place geographically, but it's a very large place scientifically. So I still very much enjoy the science landscape, the people, the interactions in, in Cambridge. And yes, there've been a few opportunities for me to return to Germany, but, then my wife is Spanish. She's also a scientist. And where would we go? What would be home for us? that That's another question, I
0: think. So let's hope that the science uh, community stays the same after the Brexit. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> so coming to your science, uh, which centers around mammalian epigenetics, particularly uh, epigenetic reprogramming during mammalian development. Um, I want to start in the year 1987 which was during your postdoc. There you had your first nature publication, which was titled Genomic Imprinting Determines Methylation of Parental Alleles in Transgenic Mice. Um, The epigenetics field was not quite what it is today now, back in those days. Um, Can you maybe give a short introduction into the field of genomic imprinting and then how you approached this first study and what you did find?
1: So, in, in fact, Stefan, you're absolutely right. So at that time, the field wasn't called epigenetics. This was before the field was called epigenetics, which is quite interesting. So that term came into into play in the 90s. So genomic imprinting was what Azim Surani's lab had discovered a few years before I joined them. And it's basically the fact that we need both a mother and a father in mammalian development to, to develop normally. So you can't do it with two mothers and you can't do it with two fathers, basically. And when I joined Azim's lab as a molecular trained molecular biologist at that point, he said to me, can you please figure out the molecular mechanism of imprinting? So, so that was my job <laughs> when I arrived. Azim didn't have any molecular biology in his lab, so I was the person who could could do the job. <laughs> At least that's what he thought. (laughs) And so in the paper, basically what we did, we looked at transgenic mice and we found a transgenic mouse strain that displayed all the properties of imprinting, namely that the transgene when inherited from mother was methylated, when inherited from father was demethylated. And that could be switched. So if the transgene and the next generation then came from the other parent it switched around again so that showed you that there was heritability for one generation and and indicating parental origin but you could also uh you know erase the epigenetic state again and and those are the key properties of all epigenetic systems is that there is an element of heritability, somatic heritability, maybe transgenerational heritability occasionally as an imprinting, one-generation heritability, but also the reversibility of the epigenome is incredibly important and incredibly exciting for things that we're, we're, we're thinking about now, for example, like aging. The epigenetic epigenetics of aging.
0: So the the main factor that uh, conveys this heritability and this plays a role in this uh, genomic imprinting, uh, yeah. At first, was thought to be a DNA methylation, right? So you also um, looked into that. That's right. Um, yeah. So what kind of methods did you did you use at that time, and uh, what's the role of the methylation then?
1: So we used. Um, methylation-sensitive restriction enzymes
0: at the time
1: and they'd been discovered a few a few years earlier so
0: it really set you up so this discovery really set you up for the things that you wanted to find out
1: exactly was the perfect tool so the restriction enzyme would cut when the DNA was unmethylated but wouldn't cut when the DNA was methylated and then you could probe genomic dna with southern blots to you know look at specific regions in the genome to make that visible and yeah we found a very simple pattern that when the gene came from from mother from the mouse mother it was highly methylated when it came from the mouse father it was pretty much completely demethylated
0: so there is a kind of erasure of this epigenetic marks in germ cell maturation and but there is also like the, the notion of yeah that it it gets like imprinted to the and passed on to the next generation so the erasure comes from the father and the imprint it comes from the mother is that what what it's was the what the principle is
1: um i guess you could look at it like that yes so the oocyte in this case plays the dominant role in that it methylates the dna and um, but it it's erased in both germ in germ cells of both genders so erasure happens both in the primordial germ cells of the male and of the female and then it's only re-established as in de novo methylated during oogenesis not spermatogenesis but it could also be the other way around so it's not always that it's the maternal side that methylates it can also be the paternal side that methylates and then not the maternal side
0: okay so it's a uh, very complex uh, then later on in your uh, in 2004 you also looked not only at DNA methylation but also on histone lysine methylation um, so what is the influence on the one hand of histone methylation and how are they interconnected
1: so exactly, so, there are, as you said, there are multiple layers of epigenetic information. There's DNA methylation, there's histone modifications, maybe other systems that we don't know yet about. And um, what we were asking then subsequently to looking at methylation, are these other systems involved in imprinting? And what we found was quite interesting was that it seemed that the placenta seemed to have a slightly different imprinting system, whereas the imprinting system for the fetus was based on DNA methylation. Sometimes the system for the placenta was only based on histone modifications and not on DNA methylation. That was what we found then.
0: How did you look at that, or how did you discriminate those systems? I mean, how do you? So we
1: we started looking at histone modifications by chip,
0: mm-hmm.
1: by chip, so pull down antibody pull down, and and then it was it wasn't sequencing yet at that time point, but it was uh, pulling down and then hybridizing for specific regions in the genome again by by southern blotting. Okay, And And, and so what's really interesting, sorry to interrupt you there, Stefan, um, is that this kind of finding has been recently uh, found on a broader scale by the groups of Gavin Kelsey, Yizhang, etc., who have found that there is a second system that imprints DNA in the germ cells by histone modifications rather than DNA methylation, and it seems that's not quite as long-lasting as DNA methylation, so it only survives into the placenta, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is an early tissue, you could say, in in embryonic development, and it doesn't survive into the fetus. So that early finding that we made is now kind of becoming textbook knowledge again, in, in the imprinting field,
0: and my question was: How are they uh, interconnected? The DNA methylation and the histone modifications are they somehow interacting in the in the development, or is it that uh, yeah, it's somehow parallel to each other?
1: There, there is both, probably. So, in this view, I think the DNA methylation system and the Polycomb system K27. Trimethylation are relatively independent from each other. But if you look more globally at epigenetic systems, there are many, many interconnections. So, canine methylation is variously interconnected with DNA methylation. And there, there are readers and readers that read one and then write the other. So, it's quite well understood how the mechanistic connections work.
0: Yeah what i wanted to to get into is um, so you have the dna methylation that is heavily regulated uh, in the development and also erased and then put back on so does the histone modif- do the histone modifications follow this pattern or uh, are they put there individually that's probably the question
1: so the global erasure process um in in the early embryo and in germ cells of DNA methylation, that also happens to other histone to other epigenetic marks. So, okay. particularly K twenty seven is globally erased. K nine is also globally erased. So, that's quite a global phenomenon in its own right, affecting many different epigenetic systems at the same time. So it's a it's a remarkable. That's really a remarkable system. Yeah,
0: that is true. Um, if you move on a little bit, or maybe not move on, but it, it's the same year, you also had a publication where you describe chromatin loops. Um, you may, may yeah, you were maybe the first one uh, or amongst the first to, to describe those loops. So what do those loops, uh, or which effect do those loops have on imprinting and on the chromatin modification in this process?
1: So that was interesting because we um, we got into this by... So we had a new colleague who arrived in the department at that time, a little bit earlier, Peter Fraser, who was very much into higher order chromatin structure, one of the pioneers of that field. And one of my postdocs, Adele Merle, at the time, she was inspired by that thinking. And she decided that this was an important question to ask. I I was uh, blissfully unaware of uh, higher order chromatin structure (laughs) and she decided to do this very um, adventurous experiments. I mean, experimentally, it was at that time, you know, the 3C had just about emerged. And the way she approached this, she actually knocked into the genome, certain tags, and then observed that those tags would meet somewhere in space. So it
0: was a really... What was the uh, method? Was it like uh, immunofluorescent fish? or?
1: No, it was a a method where she put in a tag into different positions in the genome, which would then attract a protein to bind to that tag. And then she would chip with that protein, with antibody against Mm -hmm. that protein, and then find... Other areas of the genome, you know, linked to that locus. So it was a very, very imaginative experiment that she did and worked out in the end. And the result in the end was that there were certain elements in this complex imprinted locus, IGF 2 and H19, that looped together differently on the maternal allele to the paternal allele. And this enabled enhancers to connect with one gene on one of the parental chromosomes and on the other parental chromosomes to connect with the other gene. And we thought the spatial structure was important for those connections to be made.
0: Yeah, I mean, it must also be difficult to distinguish between those two chromatids. uh, Chromatids, yeah, so the distinguish the two alleles at least
1: yeah I mean that wasn't too bad because you could use polymorphisms yeah you know you could use different uh, mouse strains and you could use polymorphisms to distinguish the parental alleles with a little bit of luck that was that was okay
0: you then also interrogated the function of different states of the uh, DNA methylation right so there's five HMC there is 5 FC. And you did, uh, I think I found three papers on that. Um, And it's always the the question, what is the function of those? Is it just intermediary products of the decay of uh, 5 or DNA methylation or do they have a distinct function, right? Does 5-HMC have a distinct function? Does 5-FC have a distinct function? So what can you say about the function of those demethylation products of the DNA?
1: So so, so, let me first, get into this in a little bit yeah a little bit of history which is quite interesting because this is one of my biggest mistakes in science interesting <laughs> and the big and that mistake was that in when was it let me in the 90s we started to think about the possibility of other modifications of methylcytosine, specifically oxidation derivatives. And when I say we, this was Adrian Bird and myself th- beginning to think about this. And what we did is we made an antibody against 5 hydroxymethylcytosine And we started testing it and playing around with it and then the students left, or the postdocs left, and the antibody went back into the freezer. And that was a huge mistake, obviously. <laughs> oh, that was
0: a mistake, okay. A,
1: a few years later, hydroxymethylcytosine was discovered <laughs> by other labs. <laughs> I mean, and imagine it was, that, yeah. that we were not very really happy at that point. <laughs> but then we decided, okay, you know, we got this antibody in the freezer, Let's start working with it. <laughs> is it a good good antibody? It, w- it was a wonderful antibody, and is still on commercial mm-hmm. commercial sales sale now. And then we started to do pull down sequencing using the antibody. We started to do immunofluorescence using the antibody. We discovered that the demethylation of the paternal genome in the zygote was associated with hydroxymethylation subsequently discovered that TET3 was doing most of this. Mm -hmm. But going back to your question, which is a really important one, are these oxidation intermediates, intermediates to demethylation, which is undoubtedly true that they are. um, And, or are they also signaling Signaling epigenetic states in their own right. And surprisingly, this has taken quite a long time, and people are still working on this problem, and it's still not so clear. What's sort of clear is that there are some readers, some proteins that can read hydroxymethylation quite exclusively, you might say, or preferentially. There are actually more proteins that like to read formal cytosine than hydroxymethyl cytosine, which is interesting in its own right. Yeah. And there is ongoing work, including in our lab, that suggests that these different types of modifications, DNA modifications, may be switches for enhancer function, for example, and maybe connect to histone modifications that we all know and love to be associated with enhancer function yeah but that's a story for the future i think
0: okay so you're still working on that yeah so now let's forward into a bit into 2019 so to last year (laughs) this was a big big year at least from my perspective uh, with three high, high impact publications from your lab and maybe we can also include here what you are planning for the future then. Also in this respect, um, the first publication I want to mention is the one that came out in Nature Communications. What is the effect on of aging uh, on DNA methylation and on transcription?
1: So, so again, a little bit of history, how we got into this first. Um, so our sort of entry point into that field was to Get excited about the so-called methylation aging clock.
0: Mm-hmm. So Steve Horvath's, um Steve
1: Horwitz and Hanum clock, and so these came out in 2013. And I thought this was really, really interesting that there was some process that, that is a chronological process that records age. Th- these are the best biomarkers of aging that. That we have, but also that these clocks can also read out biological age. So you can sort of age ahead of your clock, or you can age you know uh more slowly than, than your clock. So I I I got really fascinated with this, and then we start started to work on aging clocks and aging ideas. And the first thing that we looked at was we is this aging clock conserved? So at the time there was only the human clock. And then we found that there is also a mouse clock and subsequently many other mammalian clocks were discovered. So it seems to be a conserved universal mammalian uh, mammalian thing. And then because we got into single cell genomics at that time in a big way, we we decided to ask about how does aging play out at the single cell level? For example, are these clocks ticking in every single cell in the same way? Or is this an ensemble process where the cells clocks tick differently, but that maybe there's some synchronization process going on in the tissue in the organism based on hormones, etc., etc. And going back to the study that you referred to, what we found there is that seems that the aging methylome in every cell sort of degrades a little bit more as we age and makes mistakes which are based on copying, you know, as the, as the methylome is copied, as cells divide, there's always the prospect of making a small mistake at every cell division, and that by itself is a clock. And so that's what we sort of found, is that w- when looking at more aged tissues, we found more and more mistakes in the methylomes, little mistakes in the methylomes of the aging cells, and those little mistakes connected to the transcriptomes as well and the transcriptomes were less coherent you could say you know there there were little mistakes in the transcriptomes and maybe those little mistakes contribute to the degradation of cell function over over age
0: so the yeah if you look at maybe a liver so you you're saying that the individual liver cells behave yeah, a little bit less like a liver cell would behave in in, in a ground state, uh, but uh, they, yeah, they all drift apart, uh, and this is what leads to organ damage in the end. I
1: I think that's possibly a, a more global view in the aging field that the cell functions become less coherent, transcriptomes become less coherent with age, and then and then you get you know predispositions. Mm-hmm. creeping in to certain adult diseases so be it cancer like you know be it in the brain neurodegeneration etc cetera, etc cetera. and they come in our view those predispositions come from these little mistakes that cells make as they age
0: mm-hmm. Uh, the other two studies in 2019 focused on those single-cell experiments that you were referring to. So you are now big into this single-cell field, and this is maybe a field that's moving on really quickly now um, because everybody wants to look. I mean, of course, uh, on the population, but also being able to discriminate uh, single cells and and see what are the difference in those um, single cells. Um, what do you learn, or what do you? Yeah, what on the one hand, what did you already learn from those single cell experiments and what do you hope to learn in the future from those single cell experiments?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Super super exciting. And as you say, the the field is moving at an incredible pace right now, the single cell field. And again, a little bit of history, how we got in into this. So we were working closely with the lab of Gavin Kelsey on bisulfide sequencing, which is a method for, uh, determining DNA methylation genome-wide. And because we were working on embryos, mouse embryos, we were thinking about how can we reduce cell numbers all the time. So how can we move from a 1,000 cells to a 100 cells, how we can move from a 100 cells to 10 cells, et cetera, et cetera. And um, there was a postdoc in Gavin's lab, Sebastian, and one in my, my lab, Heather, and we were just sit, sitting and thinking. And one day I just said to them, why don't we just try one cell? And they said, oh, no, that's not going to work. And it's going to work so badly. And then we sort of said, I said, well, let's, let's make it work badly. And then we can improve it from there. You know, if we never make it work badly, we will never make, make, make it work. And they did it. They absolutely did it. And it actually worked better than badly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, what, what methods so, are you referring to?
1: So this is the single cell whole genome bisulfite by, by sequencing that was published in 2014 mm-hmm. between Mkavin's lab and our lab. And then subsequently we worked with some incredibly talented people at the Sangha single cell genome center that we joined to build into the bisulfide sequencing, RNA sequencing first. So that was the kind of uh, combined method we called it. And then the most advanced method that we developed was to have three layers, to have the methylome, to have RNA and to have chromatin accessibility.
0: So and this is the multiomics m- profiling of mouse gastrulation at single cell, cell resolution that, the, that you're exactly. to.
1: Exactly. So we, the guys in the lab developed the method and then we thought, what exciting biology could we uh, apply this to? And what we at that time got excited about in the lab is the so-called exit from, from pluripotency. So where the epiblast cells are slowly beginning to think about differentiation going into the future. And the big things that they're beginning to think about is the three germ layers emerging. So the mesoderm, the endoderm, the ectoderm, and gastrulation. So we thought these are small cell numbers. We can pick the cells at these, at these stages as embryologists. And we can apply this lovely new method to this problem. And what we found was quite astonishing because we found that the mesoderm and endoderm, so what we found is that the the global dynamics of this process is determined by enhancer epigenetics. There's nothing interesting going on in promoters or other areas of the genome as far as we can tell by now. Everything interesting was going on in enhancers and there were thousands of enhancers that were demethylated and became accessible in the endoderm and the mesoderm, all of the sudden, when these cells ingress into the primitive streak and first become endoderm and mesoderm, and this was a process that was driven by the TET enzymes, by the way, the demethylases. But the most astounding thing, I thought, was that we found that the neuroectoderm enhancers they were already primed, meaning demethylated and chromatin accessible, much earlier in the embryo before there was any any neuroectoderm. So they were already open and ready for action in the epiblast when the linked genes are not expressed yet. So there is a great big sort of asymmetry in the whole way the embryo is built, where one of the lineages is primed very early and the other ones come in very suddenly and get activated so to speak very very act reactively very very suddenly and kind of reminds us of an older idea in developmental biology where neuroectoderm is the so-called default pathway of differentiation Mm -hmm. so if you have ES cells in culture for example and you let them differentiate without giving them any specific differentiation signal, they will go to a That's the so-called default hypothesis. And what we think we found in the study is a molecular underpinning, so to speak, of this default hypothesis.
0: Well, so yeah, and then uh, yeah, you defer from that default way in um, changing enhancer activity.
1: Exactly. So the so the other two lineages need to sort of all of the sudden escape from that and, and get into another mode of signaling and demethylation.
0: Yeah. And say, I don't want to be a brain, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> exactly. So um, why did you choose to put these three methods together? Is it because it just worked or is it that you they really underpinned or supported what you wanted to find? Or is it possible to to um, also include other um, other methods in, into this multiomics approach?
1: So I think it's probably a bit of both. That firstly, the people in the lab, Stephen Clark in particular, who drove this development, they could see how it could work. You know, it's very important in science that you think about how you can make things work. Um, but also it happens to be the case that these are really important layers of information. So um, to some extent you could say that methylation and chromatin accessibility are complementary. I mean that usually, not always, that when DNA is methylated it is less accessible, when it's unmethylated it's more accessible. But what's also important is that now in ongoing and future studies we can get much better time resolution than in this initial study and we'll be able to ask questions about who comes first. Yeah. And this is really important, I think. Because this is a perennial problem in epigenetics, who comes first, who comes second, who comes third.
0: What is cause and, what is consequence? Right?
1: Uh, precisely. And in many instances we don't know the answers to, to those questions yet, which is quite frustr- frustrating. And one way to one way to go there is to have very fine time resolution in these multiomics data. And with our collaborators, we're developing new computational ways of addressing this as well. And now we have ways of asking: Does an enhancer demethylation? come before its chromatin opening come before its transcriptional activation for example or other you know whatever sequence you want to you want to discover so i think that that's coming next and then together with that there are also now methods for epigenetic editing more genome wide so you can then go in and say if i now very specifically block this enhance a demethylation in vivo, what are the consequences on lineage development of that very specific manipulation? So that's super exciting now to ask these very, uh, as you say, causal questions in epigenetics.
0: And we will be uh, exciting to read about that in the future. Um, to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Um, the first one would be, did you at one point, I mean, we, you already said that there was a mistake in your career that you maybe would have liked to avoid, but did you at one point also face a situation that you reached at the end and did not know where to go? Or was it always like super exciting and uh, you just didn't know how, what hand should do what? Um,
1: so are you asking about... I'm asking, ends, so, as in you you're reaching some sort of place and then you don't know where to go.
0: I mean, I don't mean it in the local sense, but uh, like in you 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 have ideas and uh, you try this, you try this, you try this and everything doesn't work out and then you you're kind of stuck and do not know where to go next or what what your next step could be. But I guess as a scientist, you always have ideas that, that you can try and then move on in your, your field.
1: I, I think so. I mean, yes, of course, we all, as scientists, experience this, that we try one thing, we try another thing, we try a third thing, and and they don't work. But But often that means that your hypothesis was incorrect to start with. And then once you've disproved that hypothesis which is great, then you can start with another hypothesis. And usually that gets you out of the tight corners at some point. But what has happened and maybe related to your question is that we have made big changes in the lab of our general directions. So if you look back, we started working on imprinting. Then when together with our collaborators, particularly Jörn Walter, we discovered the genome, the global epigenetic reprogramming. We started to work on that almost exclusively, and we moved out of imprinting at that time point. And then we started, beginning with the single cell technologies, we started to work on exit- from pluripotency and early castrulation, early organogenesis now. And then again, with the aging thing, we got excited about the possibility that aging is reversible because epigenetics is a reversible process. And so we got excited about that. So I see my my journey in science as a also one of changes that happened sort of I mean, I haven't counted the years. <laughs> I pro- I probably I don't want to count the years. Um, but it happens sort of in maybe every ten years or so that we make a big transition in the lab and discover something else that we all get excited about together.
0: okay, that's so you don't want to finish all those open threads that are lying around, but you then like pivot and move into a whole uh, other new direction.
1: I think that's our our way of our way of working.
0: So, like one hundred percent commitment to to the new uh, field, then.
1: Pretty much because because you you know you you work as a group and you get excited as a group, and there needs to be momentum. So we we're very much into collaborative spirit and working together as a group and so there needs to be a a sort of shared goal in a in a way of move of how we move forward yeah. that's how yeah. we work
0: yeah i think that's very important because uh, otherwise you you yeah, everybody's uh, their goal is to to move forward with his own career or her own career and uh, to have such a team spirit i guess is a is a really good thing to have so in the last uh, I think it's now 40 minutes. We have taken a journey through your scientific career. Um, Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview and you still want to share?
1: Um, I think we talked about some of the important findings. Um, I mean... maybe a sort of slightly sober reflection on where we are with COVID right now. (laughs) Although you may not want that at the end, but it's also an interesting thing. So it brings into sharp focus what we like and enjoy about science. So the thing that I miss most right now, I mean, first of all, to say that I have also now taken on the role of acting director of our institute because our previous director sadly died from from covet actually that's and so my time is now split roughly 50 percent between the science and the lab and and helping to run the institute but the thing that i miss most about the science is to share the share the work and share the success and share the enjoyment and you kind of realize how much things mean when you miss them a lot and that's one of the big things that i'm struggling quite a lot is that you know we we enjoy what we do together in the lab as a group as a as people and we see people grow in that process and, and progress through their careers. And it's wonderful to see that. And that's kind of shared enjoyment of science is sadly missing right now in the COVID situation. That's, for me, one of the most. I mean, of course, there are all the, all the dangers and everything and care that we take in the lab and everything. But that's the thing that I miss most right now.
0: So, I think you will also have like the virtual uh, uh, seminars in your lab and virtual hangouts and, and things like that to to just resemble kind of this normal situation.
1: Yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, we're also fortunate enough, as many places that we're now in the wet lab, I would say 50% back to,
0: mm-hmm.
1: well, not normal. We can't call it normal because it's distance, people wear masks, et cetera. It's not normal.
0: But at least operational
1: but At least operational, and people can can achieve things again.
0: Yeah, that that's great to to at least uh, have some momentum and to move forward a little bit in those uh, difficult times. So, thank you, Will, for your time and for being on this show.
1: Thank you very much, Stefan. I enjoyed the chat.
0: This was the thirty sixth episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at, podcast at activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.